0: You're listening to Campus Review Radio.
1: This is Carl Treacher and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of Headex, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. <music> On today's episode, we check in with Pascal Cuesta, who's just ticked over 100 days of being the Vice-Chancellor and President at Swinburne University of Technology, who says things like the danger of doing nothing far outweighs the danger of trying something new. Martin, welcome to the show.
0: Hi there Carl, it's great to be back in the HEDEX studio and to have such an exciting guest with us today.
1: For sure. Uh, I think we're not going to spend too much time talking about the uh, interview before you jump into it. What jumped out for you initially?
0: Oh, well, I think it's a really interesting time at this univer that this interview is being conducted. I mean, we're getting a lot of lot greater clarity with where the national and the global situation is now with the movement of people. We're getting clarity out of that post-budget with just where universities are up to. It's The news is not getting any better with regard to international students. We've got so many people in the whole sector telling us that it's time for a reset. But the evidence of how many of our universities are actually embarking upon significant change and getting help in doing so is very scant. It's It's a time when I worry for some and see hope for only really very few in what's happening in the sector.
1: I sometimes wonder whether I'm on the wrong planet or the wrong channel when I sort of have my my own views about... The sector. And and I look, I don't don't profess to be too deeply involved um, in in a a particular university strategy right now. But my general view, and I've made this pretty clear on some of the other podcasts, uh, is that there isn't enough being done. And so working with disruptive tech companies my whole career, I'm I'm used to the pace and the flavor and the texture of what that looks like. And I really don't see it. But I did look uh, this week on across lots of different forums. And it appears that my sentiments somewhat echoed, not necessarily in a negative let's throw stones at the industry sense, but there is a sense that maybe uh, people aren't doing or the industry uh, executive aren't really operating in a way that's going to lead them to um, to a, you know, a sustainable, successful position.
0: Well, that's funny you should say that. I mean, I, I actually see that there's four categories of universities in Australia and probably around the world at the moment. There's there's those um, to start off with that, that neither see the need to change nor to get any help or listen to others in, in making the consideration of whether to do so. And to be honest, I really worry for them. I think they're um, possibly got their head in the sand and, and, and at risk. There are some out there that, um, that see the need to change but don't really see the need to get much external input or assistance in doing so. And I worry about their capability of bringing about the change that they need. There are others that are doing a lot of listening um and and getting help but it's it's helped to carry on with business as usual rather than make a transformation and the ones that i've got most hope for are those that both see the need for some repositioning and some diversification and some change but have got the uh, the confidence to not think that they can or should do it all themselves, that they need to find innovative ways of listening to their stakeholders and they need to get teams alongside them, helping them on that journey. They're the ones that I really see are going to stand out in this current period.
1: Imagine imagine they're all going to uh, make themselves known, too, pretty, pretty shortly. I mean, right now there's conjecture and speculation as to who the... The First mover is and, and Pascal uses a, an analogy or metaphor around cycling that's it's particularly interesting, I think. And you you go into, a, as a cyclist myself, sort of, I won't indulge, overindulge and bore people to, to tears around cycling te- terminology, but Going into any of the Grand Tours, the three Grand Tours a year, the Giro, the, the Tour de France and the Welter—you uh, know they're three-week races, they're 21 days long. You generally know who's in form and out of the 200 starters, there's only five people that can win those races and you know that. Um, and so you can pick the form earlier, certainly more than you can anything like a horse racing event. So look, I couldn't put any money on which university is best positioned for that general classification performance at this stage. Well, it's funny you should say that again as well. I mean, we we have lots of
0: ways of um, measuring and metrics and benchmarks of universities. We do it in terms of financial health and the extent of compliance with different um, areas of policy provision. We've got uh, market share measures that have been there for, for, for many decades, and we've got rankings that have proliferated. But... I'm not sure any of those benchmarks and metrics really measure how well positioned a university is to change and be assisted to do so through the major pivoting need that there is in the current situation. In in many ways, that's what we've been seeking to do with our new health check is to come up with some new measures and some new tools helping people be ready for for, um, diversification and strategic change at a time when it's so needed.
1: Why don't we have a listen to your interview with with Pascal and come back after that?
0: Let's give it a go. So I'm joined today on the higher education experience by Professor Pascal Cuesta, the new vice chancellor and president of Swinburne University, who's been in the role since August of this year, having formerly been the deputy vice chancellor academic at the University of Adelaide for nine years Pascal, welcome to HeadX.
2: Thank you, good to be here.
0: And um, Pascal, how lovely to be able to talk to you as, as some of the signs in Melbourne are becoming better and better as, as each day goes by. Um, quite a different picture from when you joined the university. You commenced as Vice- Vice-Chancellor at a university in lockdown. As what has widely been seen as one of its most challenging financial circumstances for the whole sector for a generation? I wonder if you could just give us a picture of how you've been able to settle into the role w- with what I think has been about the, the first 100 days. Not a typical first 100 days for a new vice-chancellor. How's it been?
2: Well, I suppose it's not typical of the sector, but it's very typical for me because that's the only experience I've had of uh, coming into a, a new VC role. And, and uh, to, be, to be honest, I think, uh, if anything, the pandemic has made the case for technology as a solution to um, big social predicaments. Uh, If you look at the impact of COVID-19, social distance, the fact that we couldn't get big crowds in lecture theater, this in some ways is a perfect demonstration that technology can actually be the solution that brings people together when there is absolutely no other ways for them to get together. So for for my university, Swinburne University of Technology, I think it was actually quite a a beneficial uh, element. It was a, a proof of concept If if anybody out there thought technology was was evil and was going to be a threat to to humanity or to society, then here's a counterproof. Uh, It certainly demonstrates that uh, technology can be a wonderful factor for greater social connection, for uh, the building of human capital. Um, If I regret anything, it's really the fact that uh, my university was at the forefront of online learning and possibly quite uh, quite alone in advocating that good learning could happen online and all of a sudden we are now finding ourselves in the peloton because everybody has been madly cycling to to catch up with us because online learning has actually demonstrated that it could work very well this year.
0: Certainly has, and it's lovely that we can use technology for you and I to connect today and to connect you and your views with, with the listeners to HeadX. Well, we've, um, we've actually seen in recent times some policy changes in funding with a bit of a one-off um, dividend or a one-off um, injection of research funding, which I'm sure was both a surprise and, and a very welcome one. And we're also seeing some policy changes in the funding for short courses, maybe towards micro-credentials. I, is, is this going to be enough to um, make a difference to a university like Swinburne and to the sector more generally? Do you think?
2: So I think there are mixed blessings and and, and also some some um, sleeper issues, I guess, in in the recent budget announcements. I mean, certainly, uh, injection of funds in research are always welcome because they will actually enable researchers to dedicate more time and more effort to to the questions that we ask them to to the problem we ask them to solve. Um, In relation to the the funding of short courses, I think it is absolutely the way to go, because increasingly, uh, a learner will be a learner for life, right? People are are facing multiple careers. Uh, Not everybody knew at the age of 18 that they wanted to be this or that, and we have to allow people the capacity to grow and to change industry, careers, and motivations, and the scaffolding of education around the, the learner, as they evolve, I think is really critical, and short courses are obviously much better and more adapted to this kind of lifelong learning than any kind of formal three year degree so there's no question that that modularization of the, of education is in response to what is an evolution of the world of work. No no question about that. The change in cluster funding, which is also part of the latest budget announcement is somewhat more perplexing because it does go along a clear direction that uh, the government would like more people to to choose STEM and engineering careers because they know that industry 4.0 will require greater digital literacy and an understanding of technology all of those good things that Swinburne University is is dedicated to to enable and support. But the problem is that the the cluster funding means that students will pay less to go in engineering and technology, which is good, although it assumes that students are going to be responding to a price incentive, which research actually does not um, bear out. That is not actually how students choose their course of studies. But more importantly, the budget actually also cuts the government funding in those same areas. So you'd end up with this somewhat mystifying outcome that for courses that deal with STEM and engineering, for instance, and technology more generally, we will get something like 16 to 17% less funding per student than we did before. And if that's intended to encourage universities to attend to the need of Industry 4.0, we've got a problem, Houston, (laughs) which is, we're supposed to do it with less at the time when we're supposed to encourage more students to do it. And it's almost, to me, um, I, I cannot reconcile the intent that the government made very clear, which is we want people to do more STEM and, and technology related degrees with this kind of um, double jeopardy of, and you'll have to do it with, with less money. Um, it, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense.
0: So is it Houston that's got the problem or is it Canberra that's got the problem or is it places like Swinburne that are going to be left with that problem then, Pascal? I mean, what what are you expecting to actually happen, for instance, in the Melbourne market for, for how student demand in this current recruitment cycle is likely to end up having changed? And, and what will it mean in terms of the admissions decisions that you're ending up having to make at a university like Swinburne? Will you will you take more more students that suit your mission even though your funding for them goes down? And will you, will you be in a position of having to respond to any of the changes that do manifest in student demand patterns?
2: So in many ways, I think universities are just like students. We do not do things because there's money in it or because there is a price incentive or disincentive. Um, Swinburne is very much, I think, a, a mission and value-driven institution. We passionately believe in the transformative power of education And in getting our learners ready for a a technology-rich future. We actually believe that industry partners will come up to work with us because they too know that their success will hinge on on some universities being able to prepare the human capital that will make that technology work in their business and in their government and in whatever other pursuit they are interested in. So I do think that we we are not going to result from the fact that to prepare people for a a productive and successful future, we need to equip them with technology understanding and and with the capacity to work alongside machines and, 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 and build a better world. It is going to be made somewhat harder with the cluster funding, but that is assuming that we continue to operate on the logic that the government should be funding all of what we do. I happen to believe in co-creation. In the same way that we have to co-create with our students the best education experience that will get them ready, I believe that industry partners, and indeed I believe government eventually, will come to see that the co-creation with university starts not at the end with what happens to graduates, but at the beginning with what sort of talents do we need to develop for a better society. Now, if that is the predicament and industries are aware that their business is at risk if they don't have the right talent, I believe they will come and invest, not necessarily their money, but certainly their time and their energy in working with us at developing the best curriculum to get those graduates to have the right skills when they finish. So what do I mean by that? Well, Swinburne is going to have a very specific type of course architecture where no student will graduate who haven't had a work experience somewhere into it. And so industry will have to come to the party for that. We will have to get our alums to take a, a learner under their wings. Our alumni will be part of our of our teaching, if you like, cohort. We will, we will build an industry um, academy where people who are professionals have done things, have learned things, will come and share their experience with students. We will have education Uh, Academy, where people who are really at the leading edge of innovation will help us put those modules of learning into a format that can then be distributed in a multi-channel kind of logic. So on campus for some students, online for some other students, in small micro-credential form for the professional markets, indeed possibly with modules that would actually go well with partners overseas. It's about the leveraging of our digital assets and those digital assets can be a co-investment where we, we harvest the knowledge and the experience that, that comes from industry. And we, we mix it up in such a way that, that the talent that industry needs is actually grown together from the first day of student enrols.
0: So I'm fascinated by this concept that you raised at the start of this conversation about um, digital innovation and perhaps now with what's happened this year, we're all in a peloton together. So if so if Swinburne's gonna win the race, um, and it's a university of technology and therefore it can't revile from its commitment to STEM. Am I hearing you say that you see Swinburne looking to differentiate or certainly be the best university it can be through those partnerships and through its commitment to Industry 4.0? I mean, are you committing Swinburne and yourself to become more differentiated as a university in the current circumstances?
2: Completely. So, So the way we're going to get out of the peloton is that we're going to take the road less traveled. We're not going to aspire. We're going to let all the others cycle madly in order to sort of be bigger and, and richer. And they, they can all go in that direction. We are going to take the road less traveled because we feel that that road actually leads to a different destination, which is the building of human capital as a co-creation exercise with partners such as industry, but also government. So imagine, for instance, the challenge of what um, a state like Victoria is facing in relation to the aptitude of its uh, teaching cohort. Teachers who thought that all they needed to do was to be good at geography or good at language or good at whatever it is that they were teaching, all of a sudden found themselves sitting as I am now in front of their computer, talking to their students who were at home as well. Now, most of them would not have seen digital literacy as being something that they needed to have in order to be good teachers. Now the government is facing now the huge need to upskill a whole cohort of people who actually define their job description in a completely different way. Who who are they going to call upon to do this? Well, I would think Swinburne would be the right place to start, because a university that is dedicated to the development of human capital for a technology-rich future is the university that can be the partner of choice for a government when digital literacy is a challenge in a particular profession. And I've just picked on you know, the teachers as an example because it's kind of, <laughs> it, it resonates with anyone who had kids at home recently. But imagine the world of nursing in the future You know, nurses have been, um, I think, uh, educated over time for the the empathy, the capacity to care for patients. All of that stuff is is fine, except now the bed of the patient is gonna be surrounded by all kinds of machinery. There will be all kinds of diagnostic tools. The internet of things is going to transform the medical field. And what does the nurse do? Does she care for the machine? Not particularly, she cares for the patient, but if she can't work with the machine, if she doesn't know how this particular analytic capacity can actually serve um, the, the, the need of the patient. We have a whole cohort of, nurse, of nurses out there that will need to be equally brought up in terms of digital capability. And I, I, I can go on and on. I don't think of one profession that is not going to be fundamentally disrupted by the need to understand technology and work with it.
0: Very good. You're painting a picture of, of the, the, that I'm um, reading and seeing there of Swinburne differentiating around um, industry 4.0 orientation with a strong focus on technology and, and partnering with external partners in the delivery of, of its education. Is, is, is that what I'm hearing you say?
2: Well, that's what you've heard me say, but I'm not surrendering either the capacity for us to then have a very compelling narrative for international students to come and for us to be able to invest, but not in everything, invest in those things that speak to technology and make us even better at, um, at being the, the developer of where the new technologies are. So, so there is a kind of virtual cycle that, that can be uh, reclaimed but it is reclaimed in a very focused, um, in a small number of areas where, you know, to me, there's it no point in being in a top 200 in the world as a university, but being in a top 100 in tech and STEM makes a lot of sense because that's a message that is obviously going to resonate with, the, with the, kind of, um, the kind of courses, programs, researchers, and students that we would want to kind of gather in our, in our community, in our ecosystem.
0: So you, you talked about researchers there, and doubling back from the, to the start of our conversation where we were talking about the funding of research, right, is the strategy that you'll pursue then in terms of your courses and your partnerships for the education of tomorrow's graduates... <laughs> Is that going to play out in the way that you'll um, strategize research at Swinburne in the future?
2: I think it will. In, in, in many ways, differentiation means discrimination as well. So you know, if you do not attempt to serve every market and to be there for every possible configuration of programs, etc., by definition, you then have to focus your investment and your activity to a few areas of excellence as opposed to trying to let all the, all the boats uh, rise, if you like. So so I think the the work going forward is going to be about um, distilling where it is that we can really be world leaders and then really focusing on investing more in those areas. And yes, at the expense of the other areas, you know, it's it's not going to be about encouraging everybody to do more research and encouraging everybody to publish more. It is going to be coalescing um, areas of excellence where we can really increase the the gravity pool so that we will attract more talents. And we can do this certainly in terms of astrophysics and and space, we we already have very heavy weights that can attract more talent. And we can be a credible partner for universities around the world, but also for attracting the highest caliber of, of students because in those areas, we definitely lead and shine.
0: We started this conversation, Pascal, talking about the the challenge of um, commencing as a vice chancellor in the middle of a lockdown, when there was so much change going on and challenge. But as I hear you talking about your strategy, I, I imagine that you you're probably better placed to be starting a strategy now at this phase of the unfolding of the pandemic and its consequences than you would have been if you'd have started in August, twenty nineteen. How, how will you develop a strategy across the wider university community and roll that out in Swinburne in mm. the coming months?
2: So, so I agree with you absolutely. Uh, had I come a year before, I would have had to make the, I would have had to make the case for change. You know, um, Swinburne was a, a a very successful university. People were comfortable in saying that they had a a university that ticks quite a number of boxes. What the pandemic has done is to really jolt everybody in thinking. What's the future like? And so, you know, in some ways, we're in a situation where the risk of doing nothing is greater than the risk of trying something and not succeeding, which is kind of quite liberating, I have to say. Um, When it comes to the way in which those conversations can be had, and I had obviously had time to reflect and I started communicating, including remotely from Adelaide with many of the members of my team before I started uh, and arrived in Melbourne. So it struck me that if there was a need for a greater conversation with all of the staff, the way to do it was to actually use technology. (laughs) So we actually have now engaged in a very active conversation using a crowdicity platform, which I've called Swinburne Unlimited, because this is exactly what I wanted. I wanted people to just let loose of any kind of you know what things do you think work and what do you think the future looks like and what sort of thing could we do more and and the take up I, I started with a town hall presentation where about 1200 staff attended and I just presented facts because I'm, I'm, I'm you know I'm science driven and rather than say this is what I think I said this is who we are and just presented a whole pack of slides that were just providing the data And then I opened the gate for that conversation to start on that Crowdacity platform. And what Swinburne Unlimited has done is, first of all, give voice to everyone. So we've got an equal participation between professional and academic staff, which is great. But also we've had people saying, you know what? I've been thinking this for quite some time, and now is my chance to put it out there. And then, of course, it's not anonymous. So we've had a very civil, respectful, and engaged conversation and loads of good ideas coming out of it. Many of them, of course, ideas that I kind of thought would be would be popular, but which I didn't put out. I just kind of let the community engage around those those questions. And that's the thing about universities. You know, it's full of really smart people. So at the end of the day, you can always trust the community to really think clearly and carefully about the the various challenges that you put in front of them. And I could not be more pleased with the kind of response that I've had. And so What I'm going to do in the next couple of months is kind of bring it all into a sort of set of themes and then um, derive from that some priorities. And some things will just happen from January next year. In fact, some of the things that are happening now in terms of reshaping the universities are already inspired by what I see as as really quite spontaneous um, opinions emerging from from this conversation. So, you know, just like I said before, um, if there is a human or a social problem, Sometimes technology is the perfect solution.
0: Well, look, it's uh, fascinating to hear of your first experiences and early experiences and the clarity of your thinking and the extent to which you've been able to engage with your colleagues. I'm sure we, we will all wish you really well. And, and from starting this conversation, fearing that I might be having a, a talk with somebody that was suffering from starting their term as vice chancellor in a lockdown and at the, in this circumstances, I'm left from our conversation feeling that actually it's been advantageous to you. It's giving you an opportunity to have clarity on the strategic future and to find new ways of engaging with partners to the university and to the university community. Pascal, thank you so much. We wish you well and um, good luck to all of you at Swinburne and to you and your role.
2: Thank you very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it.
0: So um, that was Pascal's thoughts as a hundred day in vice chancellor of a really interesting university in Swinburne, um, Carl. What, what did you make of just what her views are of strategy and how she's consulting and and the ambition in that strategy?
1: Boy, oh boy! I mean, that's this is a, a very, very interesting interview. I, I loved hearing from her. So, she is clearly a disruptive leader. You know, someone that is prepared to to shake the cage for the right reason in a, in an industry that doesn't like being. Um, what's the right expression? shaken um so i think she's going to be i think she's going to be excellent i think some of the things she's saying there around the opportunity to innovate you know um the unlimited concept to draw on the expertise from what she says you know you've got a group of very smart people that actually contribute and will actually end up shaping you know a remarkable future Um, i think that's all brilliant um you know, you've got to go on the on the journey with a leader like that, and it's and coming across these leaders, it's incredibly rare. You find so many leaders are actually just managers that have moved their way up from shifting things and operational focus. You know, Pascal's clearly got a strategic mind. She's truly she's she's got the courage as well. I think that's going to be required right now to face into things that that she's never done before, that her people have never done before and the industry's never done before. Um, so look, I was fascinated by that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I mean, her her line about taking the road less travelled and being clear about which race you're trying to win, um, I think she's absolutely clear on which race she's trying to win for, for Swinburne and she sees a, a real opportunity, not necessarily to break out for the from the pack on the on the road that all others are travelling, but a a different route for success for for Swinburne. Going back to some of the things I said before in the interview, I I think Pascal's leadership of Swinburne clearly puts that university right now in that category of a place that knows it needs to change, but is prepared to listen and take help on the journey that it is embarking upon of making that a success. And as I said before, that's, uh, that's the sort of institution I have a lot of hope for right now.
1: And there's a sense of realism as well that, that people don't uh, – that actually is really required. So w- when she talks about we have to make changes, and she doesn't do it in a way that's um, overly theatrical. It's quite pragmatic. You know, we've the market says this, the, um, the realization of the pandemic and the, the government position is this. So therefore, we're doing these things, and we're going to go after them and do it this way. Now, that's, that's entirely legitimate and required right now. What I suspect she's going to find is inertia through the business, that where she's going to have to find a way to tell that story to take the people on that journey. You know, it's one thing her having the vision and being strategically minded and moving in that direction. It's another to tell this compelling story so she just breaks through that inertia and, and brings people, whether it be her own staff or, or more importantly, the market on that journey to, to stand up to say... You may have had a brand image or an understanding of us as a as an entity, which was X. Well, we're now Y, and this is why it's important to get get on board with us.
0: Well, I mean, she's operating in the very competitive environment of the the Melbourne higher education market. Lots of universities in 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 that city and that state of Victoria, um, and some pretty fierce competition. It's only going to be fiercer this time this, this time round. It's it's clearly a a, a market a market context which needs. Which, which cries out for people sort of standing apart from the pack. and um, I think that's a perfect example in many way of, of how Swinburne is sort of well, well placed now with some of the things that our health check seeks to measure of not only not really its current financial status or its historical rankings but how well set up up it is to change by listening to its stakeholders and engaging with its stakeholders in building a new culture and building a point of differentiation.
1: And it's no different to any other university. You know, the, the brand institute that I've been CEO for for 20 years, all we do is is evolve iconic brands. So evolve brands that have a pre-established condition understanding in their market. Now, the biggest risk that we've always found is um, leaders underestimating the effort required to change that image. So... People are you know, creatures of habit, we're creatures of conditioning and the human condition means we like to categorize and understand things. And when we land on understanding, we often sit there and say, yeah, I fully understand what that is. We're now in a position where universities have to shift that and change the way that we or the market views them. And so the process and the mechanics involved in that shift is often underestimated. So I mentioned before telling that story, but actually evolving an iconic brand means reshaping the way that we think and feel about them. And so the leader's role in that is critical, but it's bigger than that. And it doesn't work without really compelling communication, without standout experiences that speak to their value proposition in a way that's quite distinct.
0: I think you're right. It's why when... Um... When I was at Griffith and, and we worked with you as, as brand the Brand Institute in the better telling of the Griffith story, we saw the value of that combination of those two forms of experience. And now the opportunity uh, as ex to do that with with the sector at a time when there's so much need for it is one that, that we're clearly very excited by.
1: Yeah, the Griffith story is a good one too, because you know quite quite well that we were initially quite reluctant to take on the assignment. Because of the, um, you know, the perception that was the university ready to actually change in a way that was going to be meaningful and that we could associate our reputation with, and after a series of, you know, consultative efforts with you and the executive, it appeared that that was the case. So, you know, and it played out as it did. That was a really good case study, certainly in part for what needs to happen to reestablish a brand identity in the market.
0: Well, and I think what you and I can see here is that in a university like Swinburne, University of Technology, there's a a perfect example of one that has the opportunity to really make some great strides forward. We're very pleased to be working with them, and I I think they're a university to watch for the future.
1: I'll be interested to see how the I mean the health check that we we've produced, that's readily available on our website for universities to to wander through to get a, a preliminary understanding, I should say, which is a self-assessment tool that we we borrowed some of the foundations or the framework from you know, the APRA self-assessment through for the Banking Royal Commission so that it sort of was based on particular standards. Um, is is really the right place to start. You know, universities can have a look at how they are without any sort of big brother no one's looking over their shoulders no pressure to do anything it's just purely where am I at you know is it a position that I'm unconsciously incompetent when it comes to what's required for change or am I actually on that journey and doing quite well and where are the areas that I might need help help um, help with
0: well it's been great to have um, had the chance to develop that sort of benchmark out of your experience in the financial services industry but it's been equally great for you and I to then um, evolve that tool to be so relevant to the higher education sector with what we've learned along the journey of Headex, talking to vice chancellors, policy analysts, and leading spokespeople on the sector um, in our journey as Headex to date, but also with all the experience that we can collectively draw from of working with the higher education sector over many decades.
1: Absolutely. Is there anything else that you pulled from um, Pascal's uh, interview that you want to jump on before we before we close the episode? Um, well, I think
0: the, the the idea of that she promoted there of being really innovative in the use of technology is, is clearly something that many universities are thinking about and they've all had to encounter in their switch to going online this year. I thought the challenge of staying engaged with staff and getting the pulse and the feedback from staff by not having the chance for the regular um, face-to-face tours of campus and town hall meetings for a vice-chancellor in her first 100 days who's come into a university environment where everyone's working from home. But that hasn't stopped her being really innovative in applying digital tools to promote collaboration, promote in- promote innovation, and promote feedback. That was, a, for me, a particularly striking um, example of how you can think out of the box in responding to the current challenges. Well, well, well done for that initiative.
1: You know what, what I liked most was, you know, we talk about strategy, and everyone talks about strategy. She actually has one. She has a strategy, and she's driving it. You know, it's no longer, oh, we must do, how must have a strategy. She's got a plan. She talks about her plan in great detail. She's very comfortable with it. You know, the, the things that she said there around, traditionally, we, we look at the student as almost the outcome of our influence. You know, we need to really sh- shake that up and involve industry in that process, that together we sort of work on, work on, work on talent that's most appropriate for the workforce. Um, yeah, that's, that's a different way of thinking you know forever you've had adjuncts rolling in and talking about industry relevance um, and this is a more formal, interesting way to do it. it's more meaningful
0: well i think that commitment to work with industry partners and the and the ideas of co-creation were a strong part of the flavor of what we heard there and look i know there's a lot of people in swinburne that are really excited to have such a disruptive leader um, at the helm at the moment and um, i think it will be very very interesting to see how the coming months play out with a university that's setting off on A road less well-travelled but one that's got a lot of promise at the end of it.
1: Mm. And um, we haven't talked about culture in this particular podcast but that goes hand in hand. If you have a disruptive leader like this, in our experience, the, the culture, you know, prerequisite is significant, you know, to take people on that journey. One is telling the story, but how do you build the environment and the climate and nurture people in a way that um actually lines up to that strategy so that people are on board. They don't just get it but they actually feel really compelled to be part of it is um is going to be critical for her as well.
0: I think so. I, I, I can imagine at Swimburn right now there's an awful lot of people getting on their bikes and pedaling pretty hard in the right direction.
1: Yeah for sure. All right that's, uh, that's all we have time for in this episode. Thanks Martin. Thanks Carl.